Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. This week's podcast features Bobby Bailey, a social entrepreneur, filmmaker, storyteller, and climate change activist. Bobby was a co-founder of Invisible Children, the nonprofit organization that shone the spotlight on the abduction of children to be used as child soldiers in Uganda. Bobby and his fellow co-founders orchestrated 2,000 college and high school chapters, nine national tours, and three worldwide advocacy events. He spoke at large conferences, film festivals, colleges, and organizations around the world, including the United Nations. In this classic master's interview, you'll hear how Bobby's influence and inspiration mobilize young adults for multiple causes around the world. Bobby firmly believes that everyone can make a difference and change the course of history. If you enjoy this classic interview, please share it with your friends and visit masterspodcastclub.com to sign up for our mailing list. And remember, Masters Podcasts are now available on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify Podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Wynn Claybaugh. Welcome to this issue of Masters, which uh, I, I think I, I'm getting luckier and luckier with the people that I am able to lure to my house here <laughs> to, uh, to do these interviews. And I just think it's so incredible that I get to expose the beauty industry and not that our subscribers to Masters are only within the beauty industry, but to be able to bring to salon professionals people who are making a difference Somebody once called it unconventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is what we already know. And most of us already know what customer service looks like in the beauty industry. We know what product knowledge looks like in the beauty industry. And what's going to take us to the next level is what we don't know. And what we don't know is unconventional wisdom. And so for masters to have the opportunity to bring to our listeners uh, people outside of the beauty industry who are doing incredible, incredible, phenomenal things truly is a gift. And today is right up there with that. Thank that you. honor, that opportunity. Yeah. I'm sitting here with uh, Bobby Bailey. Bobby, welcome to Masters. Thank you so much, Wynn, for having me. Now, this is one of those times where I, I'm, I'm going to have to sit here and read your bio because it's just uh, it's too intense for me to skip over anything. <laughs> so, Bobby, is the, you're a social entrepreneur, which I really want to ask you about. You're one of the founders of Invisible Children which uh, you know, many of us are, are familiar with, but we'll have you kind of give us an explanation of what Invisible Children is all about. And along with your co-founders, uh, you oversaw the vision for getting this launched. You attended the University of California Film School, and so as a filmmaker and an activist, you kind of combined those two roles. So not only did you have something in your heart, but you had a way to express that in, in a way that was moving for people. I mean, the, the films that you produced, and there's been quite a few of them, have really, really clamored people together and, and got people on track and got people focused with uh, making a difference. Mm -hmm. And you did that through a film, which I think is incredible. Not, yeah. that, not that there wasn't certainly a whole bunch of other things behind it, efforts and, and sweat. And I think the email that you sent me the other day that you're, uh, what'd you call it, couch surfing right now? Oh, right, I mean, whenever you do kind of a movement, which is kind of exposing people to these issues, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, sleeping on couches and, and going around the country. But I think I was fortunate to be in Africa and have a video camera and be able just to tell a true story about some of the um, injustices in the world. And, you know, it's one thing if the individuals that you meet affect yourself personally. But to see that translate, and I think film is one of the most provocative and interesting ways in which that message can translate mm -hmm. um, through the moving picture has been a great experience that people do care and it, when we put out our first film for invisible children we never thought that our generation would respond in such a powerful way towards the content of the documentary film and i can go into that too well it has people have responded i mean how many people have seen that particular film about invisible children which was that your intention? You just went over there looking for a story, correct? 
You know, or did, in a you way, know, did you know what the story was going to be? Not at all. I mean, in a way, I'm, I was 20 years old, and this was 2003 before YouTube and Facebook and MySpace. It seems like forever ago, right? right. And uh, we were driving. We were actually wanted to cover a little bit on Sudan and the civil war there, but we were in Uganda, and a vehicle got bombed right in front of us. Hmm. And uh, the army of Uganda came back the other way and said, you got to turn around. We saw the smoke pillows. And they said, you got to turn around the rebels. The rebels are there. And we're like, rebels, what are you talking about? We didn't even know that there was a, a war in northern Uganda. So we find out that these kids have been taken and turned into child soldiers. We'd never made a documentary before. We had never really made a film before, me and my uh, co-founders of Invisible Children. So we put it together and put it out there. And I think the one thing that uh, the youth really responded to is to say, these guys aren't professionals, but that's rad that they're just telling the truth about the situation and they're giving us an outlet to do something. Right. So, you know, when we, we gave the film away, we distributed it, but we, we think that about 7 million people have seen that rough cut film. And um, then, of course, we've had our large scale events to end the longest running war in Africa, where consecutively for three years, about 80,000 people have come, sacrificed a night of their life to sleep outside. And uh, it's just been tremendous to see the, the call of our... Which we're going to talk about, I was very fortunate to hear about that. And so we got several of our schools, Palm Mitchell schools around the country to participate in that. But you've orchestrated 2,000 college and high school chapters, nine national tours, and three worldwide events. 67 million saw the latest event called The Rescue. In total, the three advocacy events have brought out 250,000 people. Actually, you're saying it's a lot more than that. So Bobby now speaks to large conferences, organizations, film festivals around the world, uh, notable colleges and organizations, including the UN, uh, Passion Conferences, Summit Series, the Carter Center, the West Wing, Senate and House hearings. How old are you? 28, yeah. 28. Yeah, I know that you're also a bit of an expert on that, on your own generation, on the millennial generation, which I really want to talk about too. Um, you're regarded as the most talented and passionate men of your generation. Uh, wow. You've Who wrote my bio? <laughs> your, your mom. <laughs> Uh, That's amazing. You've now founded a new company called uh, The Brave. Uh, yeah, I founded that one because The Brave, um, when I looked out into the world, I mean, basically, you know, when you're young, your world is smaller, I think. You know, um, I have a four-year-old friend named Wiley who, you know, got really excited when a friend of his gave him a little card that said, you are in my club. You know, so when you're young, your, your world is small. You're like, that makes such a difference. When you grow older, high school, college, your world starts exploding. Um, and of course, going to Africa, seeing these kids as child soldiers, my world just exploded. Like, how can this happen? Well, after seeing the effects of malaria, of hunger in the world by being in these places, I said, I'd like to start a company that uh, can address these issues mm -hmm. through film and through movements, allow invisible children to really focus on child soldiering and then perhaps I can make films uh, for, the, for this generation on these other issues that we have the possibility to really end. I mean, if you want to serve the age, the best way to do it is to betray it. And what I mean by that is exposing the issues that are just not in front of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, malaria is not an issue that we deal with today Child so in this country. Child soldiers, we don't deal with that stuff. Right. But... If we want to serve it and we want to talk about justice issues, these are things that we can do. Because in a sense, like Spider-Man, we have a lot of responsibility. And with that, I mean, with great power comes a lot of responsibility. And we have great power living in this country um, and having the opportunities we have to have an education and kind of make whatever we want for our life. A lot of people, 90% of the world, I would say, doesn't have that opportunity. So in a sense, it's fun to like see what our generation here in the West is capable in affecting uh, the global community. Bobby, if you don't mind, I would like to kind of take us in a direction with this twofold. Number one, I want to expose our listeners to what you're passionate about. 
I, I got to see your new film, which is on malaria. Mm -hmm. You last night here in Long Beach, California, you had a, a viewing of mm -hmm. the film. You're showing up in LA tonight, or something. Or USC not? tonight. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're out there. That's why you're couch surfing. Exactly. Because yes. you're you're trying to again expose everybody to this film, and we'll we'll ask you about that. What I would also like to do, though, is just kind of be able to let our listeners educate themselves on what it takes, what is involved in creating a movement. Because mm. people listening to this, they have their own movements. They have their own mm. things that they, they're passionate about. And so maybe you can educate us on how to make that happen. But I'd also like to kind of, uh, any chance that I get to be in front of uh, somebody who is a, from the millennium generation mm, yeah. and is really doing something incredible, you know, like you are, and I've had a lot of opportunity recently to interview people around your same age. And I, and I like that exposure to the beauty industry because I heard it said that uh, within the next 10 years, 60% of hairdressers are going to retire because they're at that age. Yeah. And it's that next generation. Somebody once said, I never know if these facts are correct, or but, you know, why let the truth get in the way of making a good point? Uh, <laughs> I heard it said that, you know, as high as 80% of hairdressers will be from that millennium generation, but their bosses are baby boomers or generation X who oftentimes don't really understand this millennium generation. And, and oftentimes, not only do they not understand this generation, nor know how to motivate and manage and work with that generation, oftentimes they have the, the wrong truth. They have the wrong perception. They think that this generation is is lazy and irresponsible, and yet statistically, this is the generation that, although they're the highest maintenance <laughs> generation in U.S. history, they will also be the highest performing generation that this country has ever seen. Mm -hmm. And what they control right now, what the influence that they have for spending money, they're the probably studied more than any other generation in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. And when you look at statistics, high school uh, graduation is up, college enrollment is up, Scores are up. Mm -hmm. Teen pregnancy is down. I mean, mm -hmm. so there's there's good facts, uh, statistics coming from this generation, and it's all good news. So can we just start with that? Do you no, mind? I'd if, love uh, to start with. Okay, that. so yeah. so teach us what you know about your generation, the millennium generation, because people listening to this, you either are from this generation or you need to know about this generation because this is all very very good news. Yeah, well, I think you're right. There's a great amount of potential with this generation. From my experience being a millennial and knowing a lot of them obviously because they're my peers I just think that the connection to causes is very important I mean it's one of the the keystones for this where did that come from generation is it because you're more exposed because of the amount of information that's available globally through the internet I heard it said that 50% of high school graduates right now they have to do volunteer work as part of their high school experience. I didn't have that when I went to high school. You know, I'm 50 now. I didn't have that. I have a wonderful mom and dad who exposed us to the idea that there are people less fortunate than we are and we need to be involved there, but I didn't get that from high school. I think what Thomas Friedman said about, entitled his book, The World is Flat, is really so true for our generation. We've seen it. We kind of have grown up a bit with the internet. Now I can have a friend, my friends in Africa, Facebook and MySpace me. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are my peers. I can be closer to someone 3,000 miles away in the digital age than I am to my next door neighbor. Right. And that's the truth, I mean, now that we have this communication. So for our generation, the, the walls and the boundaries that were put up uh, perhaps during the Cold War uh, and even before that, for previous generations, are just not there for us. I mean, you've, you've seen what people were tweeting and following the tweets from Iran, and really our generation supporting those, uh, the youth over there, saying, we are with you, asking Obama to do certain things in the name uh, of justice. I think equality is something that is so important to us, and the hope that we can change the world. What's interesting, and I don't have to get into to why I decided to choose this malaria project, but it is the deadliest disease of all time. So for me as a millennial, I'm like, if we have the capability to end deaths from malaria, the deadliest disease of all time, 500 million people infected with malaria now, why wouldn't I want to be a part of that? And I think uh, youth are clamoring to say, I wanted an identity past just my sports team 
or this niche or this tribe that I'm in. That has to directly do with a tribe that's a cause, you know? And so the more that you can also empower people to say, your voice matters, like we can't do this without you, the better off your movement will be. You know, I think you're exactly right on there that first of all, whether it's, uh, it's social or work, people want to belong to something that's bigger than themselves. So I'm not here just to get a paycheck. Oh, not at all. I think in the 80s, we might have seen that a lot with the youth coming out. But I mean, literally what's so inspiring to me, well, I mean, obviously, if you do any kind of nonprofit, you're really not in it to make the money. But mm-hmm. what we've seen with Invisible Children having 80 people willing to sacrifice four months of their life living in a van, mm-hmm. couch surfing, mm-hmm. the reality of their joy is not in the, the paycheck. Right. Happiness, I think our generation might realize that, sure, I mean, healthcare is important. We need these certain things. We need a sustainable life of you know a certain monetary value. But we know inherently in our heart, for some reason, different than others, that the happiness comes with community and doing something else, pushing yourself out there. Hmm. And I think also they're stepping into the realization that they can do a lot more than anybody, any other generation, just because hmm. we've progressed as humanity. I think the paycheck's important. I always tell people it, it needs to be high on your list that you want to make a lot of money. I used to have these bad ideas about that, like, ooh, it's not a nice thing to want to make money. I'm like, screw that. I mean, why do we sometimes associate spirituality with poverty. I don't get that. You know, mm-hmm. nothing spiritual about not being able to pay your bills. And when you have a lot of money, you have power and you can use that power to do good for other people, especially people who suffer or to get a message out there or whatever. So I, th- I think the message for uh, a boss listening to this is, yeah, your people show up to earn a paycheck. Yeah, they show up and they need to sweep hair and they need to show up on time and they need to follow the dress code and they need to cut a lot of hair and sell a lot of product and that's part of their job if they're working in a salon. But why not empower them? So rather than engage only their hands, engage their hearts as well by allowing them to use the platform of working in this salon as a place that I can also make a difference in a cause that I'm passionate about. Yeah, I mean... Maybe it's different for me just because, you know, founding a couple organizations where people literally work for free. Mm-hmm. So that uh, motivation for them to, um, you know, th- their unique place within the organization or, or their stamp or being part of the community has been the chief idea mm-hmm. within Invisible Children. It, it isn't the paycheck. In fact, we are like, just take what you can need to survive when we started. Mm-hmm. And the... What I would say is you become so much tighter because you're all sacrificing together. And I'm not saying that money is wrong and and going after it. But if you can build in into your organization, into your company, a way in in which people are excited to get to work, to stay together, to go out after work, to serve together, then you're going to have lifelong employees. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the truth. And they're going to work so much harder because they feel like it's theirs, you know, rather than just showing up and it's it's your thing. No, it's yours. This is only going to happen if we do it together. I don't think there's the hierarchy, the bureaucracy that we've seen in past generations as much. Mm-hmm. Leadership, in my mind, in in this generation, has to do more with you know inviting people into the team and making them feel valuable and also helping mature them so that their value as a team member really resonates and and makes everybody profit. Because you just brought it up, how would you define old school leadership? And then I'm gonna ask you to define new school school? leadership. I, I think, you know, it's funny. There's definitely a place in corporate America for what we've seen, the hierarchy, the boss is important, putting people in in place. But I think we as millennials, okay, the old school would be, I will tell you what to do as a boss and you will do that because I know, or as a manager, what we need to do. I would say the new school is saying, I'm inviting you in to what I'm dealing with in my mindscape because I think that you can contribute massively to the success of what we can accomplish. I have goosebumps Only, that. <laughs> only if we can accomplish it together will we be successful. So for me, it's like, I think the best leaders in this generation will be ones that make very few decisions themselves, like in a bubble, or corporately it'll happen. Or if they can just 
empower those that are, if quote unquote, below them, um, then they're going to have, like I said, lifelong employees. Because no one wants to just work for someone else's vision. I, I, I like want to share everybody's vision. So a, a true leader really has to be able to, you know, convey their vision and allow that to be molded. I read some statistic about when they asked employees to rate in order of importance, income was about number seven on the list as to why they would continue working for that company. Number seven, that's pretty low. And what was more important than that? My opinion matters, that I'm safe at work, um, that I have a voice, that I have a friend at work, and those things were far more important. What are some of the other traits about the millennium generation that would be valuable for our listeners to hear? Well, for me, you know, I can talk about just individual experiences that I've had with employees. It's so important that I will sit down with my designer, you know, and I'll say, what do you think about going in this direction? And then he'll be able to bounce back ideas with me. So that time, there's a book out there, One Minute Manager. I just, to me, it's like employees that you're close to that you want to bring up and mature with you, you need to just spend more time with them. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for me, that's important. Mm-hmm. You know, and not just like, let's get the job done, but how's your wife? You know, that, that normal stuff, but oftentimes we forget it, that everybody's on this journey of life. And I mean, it's weird, but my life and my work kind of commingle all the time. And I think, I don't claim to be a workaholic. I just love what I do. And I think my employees love what they do and want to be a part of it. And it becomes a lifestyle choice. So if, we, if you can build that into your framework, then you have, again, a, an army out there that you're all kind of moving together and, in, in fellowship. And it's, it's great. So it's not nine to five. Nine to five is the job. TGIF. That came up because people can't wait till Friday at five o'clock so that they can then go have a life, that they can then go enjoy themselves. Otherwise they hate what's happening between nine to five. And so what you're saying is when people love what they're doing and there's ways of of creating that, that, that love and that harmony and that passion for what you're doing, no matter what it is, then it's not just about nine to five. Yes. And I'll say this too. It, It might seem like what I'm saying is, is very weak as far as you have to coddle your employees or whatever, not at all. What has I've seen is very effective is you throw out an impossible vision. You know, people in my offices have cried, you know, they've gotten upset. I mean, one of my films, we have it on tape. Uh, our movement director, Margie Dillenberg, starts breaking down and saying, you're asking me to do the impossible, but it's that charge that like, it's not just you alone. We're all doing it together and it's crazy crazy what we're trying to accomplish together. But that is the charge. I mean, we're not going for the mediocre here. And so if a nine to five, just, I mean, that's mediocre to me. It's like, no, this is to pull off the impossible. We're all going to have to be in it to win it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if that really resonated. But oh yes, it does. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. So Tell dream, us. dream big. Mm-hmm. I mean, dream big, not only for the company and allow people into that vision, but dream big too and what you can do to change the world because that's what people want. They don't want to be like, oh, we can have a bake sale and raise 30 bucks. They want to say, how can we drive 80,000 kids to sleep out in the street and really sacrifice? Hmm. I mean, when we started Invisible Children and we did the Global Night Commute, was our first event where we had about, you know, like I said, about 80,000 people. What did, what did you call it? Was it called Displacement? What was the. So there's three events that we okay, did, each right. driving, like, you know, like I said, 80,000 people. And the first one was called Global Night Commute. The right. second one was called Displacement. And the third was The Rescue. And The Rescue got a lot of hits in the media, which was really nice. Um, but the previous events didn't really, but it was still such an adventure. And we made a musical with our company to promote on a, on a cause. We made a musical, a seven minute musical. And we didn't sleep for months. And it was the wildest, craziest, most fun time, stressful time of my life. But when we had the original idea to say, we're gonna have a night where high school kids and college kids sleep outside to end the longest running war in Africa. Uh, the CEO says to us th- that you're, I mean, you're going to get sued so much. These are high school kids. How can they sleep outside in a downtown area? Are you kidding me? We couldn't get an insurance backer to like give us the insurance, you know, for even the permits. But you know what we said? We're going to do it anyway. We're going to push in to that vision because it is impossible. Mm. Two weeks before the event, 
We got the insurance claim. We didn't know how many people were going to come. Two weeks before the event, we had about 15,000 people signed up. By the time the event came, 80,000 people decided mm. to sleep out. Life-changing, not only for the staff and employees, but also the volunteers. And I think that's important, too, to know that you will have staff, and you will have volunteers, and you will have these people that you're involved with. Like, for example, Paul Mitchell Schools. Like, I feel close to that community of people because I get my hair cut there, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a fun place to be. So I would, I rep it, if mm -hmm. you will, to other friends. And that's what you want to create in your business, in your community, to say, like, this is open to everybody to come in and share in this vision with us. I mean, the gathering spot can be your place of business where you earn a living, but people who are involved there, maybe they're not coming to get a haircut, but they're coming to volunteer or to get informed or to make a difference. Yeah, it's like open source. There you go. You know, you leave it open. You know, when all this like Napster stuff came out, you know, free music or free downloads of movies, to me, I was like, I don't care. If I just care to get the message out because the mm -hmm. profit will come right. if you're talented enough. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just, to me, it's always been about inviting people into the family, into the story. You're so funny. When we, before we started recording, you're like, oh, I'm so glad this isn't video. I wish this were video yeah. today because you're like, if people can see you, you're ready to jump out of your chair right I now. This, this passion. Hands. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> oh, I love that passion. What else about this millennial generation that you can kind of teach us and, and help us to, to understand and to work and to empower and inspire and manage? And I just think, you know, there is an importance to boundaries with millennials. There is definitely an importance with boundaries. What do you mean? Well, I mean, uh, I, this goes to say boundaries as far as, okay, you do have to set up, be here at nine, be here at five. However, I think what's more important to millennials is getting the job done and then also you know consistently going back and talking through the process as well so for me you know millennials too I'm directing millennials if you will a lot mm -hmm. you know you are too mm -hmm. so there's a big learning curve so what I tend to do is put the gauntlet really high and then there'll be some you know trickle down failure and stuff like that but then not getting mad at all but saying okay how can we do it better next time with them so I don't know. I mean, I think the challenge is a big thing. I think the challenge is a big thing. And, and that's probably for a lot of generations, but I've seen it a lot. With they want a challenge. Yeah, they, they really do. I mean, if you don't set them up to be challenged, I think it just becomes blasé. And they feel like they're smarter than their boss almost because they're like, well, they don't know what I'm really capable of. Wow. But if you push them, if you grow, grow them, you know, then you have a synergy that's just off the charts because they see the value in you as just a leader, you know, and, and they say, you've made me into a better person. And you can look them in the face and say, you've made me into a better person as well. I mean, that, my experience was that, I mean, years ago, they were just happy to have a job, employees, mm -hmm. not the millennium generation. They were just happy to have a job. And so if I stuck them in the back room and said, you're going to spend the next six months folding towels and sweeping hair, they were like, cool. I'm just happy to be here. Mm -hmm. And now their first day, they're like, so what do I have to do to move up? I'm like, you just got here. But that's how this generation thinks. So like what you were saying, they, they want to be challenged. They want to know what's the next step. What's my career path laid out for me? And how quick can I get busy with this one? But you know, if someone comes with an attitude that they won't sweep or they won't take out the trash, right? they've got to learn. They've, that's the first step. Got it. Even as a CEO of a company myself or whatever, I'm taking out the trash. You got to set that example because often people are like, where's the easy road? And I'm saying, if you work with me, this whole thing is not easy because we're growing. You know, it's just like a relationship. It's like a, a marriage, you know, you grow, you make each other better. You know, that's what you hope to find in your leadership mm -hmm. of your organization. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, these kind of lessons that mm -hmm. you learn just from everyday life. So let's just kind of, kind of wrap up with invisible children. So you, are you still working with them or you, you, you're now on to other projects and other causes and... You know, when you found something, right. it's always going to be your baby. Right. They just won, and I say they, but I should say, we just won a million dollars from Chase. Oh, I know, isn't that cool? It was amazing. We, so we, we're partnering with Charity Water to you know help with that, Haiti. I think they are. You know, So we talk, my best friend, one of my best friends, Jason Russell, is you know, obviously leading the company, and I just have so much respect for their work, and I think if there wasn't two filmmakers there that are remarkably talented, Larry and Poole and Jason mm -hmm. Russell, the, mm -hmm. the founders as well, 
I wouldn't feel comfortable leaving, but I did because they, it's in great hands. Ben mm-hmm. Keyes is the CEO. He's doing a great job. And so, you know, the, the idea, right, is to build something that then you can be hands off, mm-hmm. you know? So I felt comfortable uh, leaving. And of course, there's other stories out there that just need a voice. When Elizabeth Gore, you know, she, she's executive director for partnerships at the UN Foundation. And she started this organization called Nothing But Nets under the UN Foundation. Nothing But Nets. Okay. So she came to me and she told me some of these wild statistics about malaria. And I was like, are you serious? I mean, one of them, which you can't, it's not really proven, but one of the statistics that just is mind blowing is that of inhumanity, half the deaths that have occurred in humanity are because of malaria. Half the deaths. I mean, staggering numbers. The deadliest disease of all time, by far. And she comes to me and says, Bob, we need to end this. And you know what? We can end deaths by malaria by 2015, but we need this generation to really respond, to get the microphone in the hand of our government so they can speak into it and say, we want this to end. So we are building that microphone Hmm. for the government to be that mouthpiece that allows the funding to come in to end malaria. Because it will take some financing, but also it's just the individual. I mean, how, what a simple solution Hmm. to just send a net. So it's this, this high concept idea that we can end the deadliest disease of all time and that it won't really take that much on a big scale and even on a little scale to get a net. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm in. I really want to do it. And uh, the experience was pretty, pretty gnarly. You saw the film Mm -hmm. and uh, never have I experienced something like that with the the baby in the hospital. You know, it was pretty, pretty uh, traumatic, but um, deaths in hospitals, especially young kids from one to four, uh, happen every 30 seconds. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't too much of a surprise after I really started thinking about you know, what had happened in the hospital with baby Ivan and the death that, that, uh, yeah, it happens. And, you know, talking to the doctors, they say this happens about four times a day in that hospital, that one hospital in Northern Uganda from malaria. So I just think, you know, it's that idea of stupid poverty. It's that idea of like these diseases that are in all essence stupid. Like we've ended in America 50 years ago. All over the, the world, it's kind of being cut in half, being cut in half. So we're close, but we can do this. We can end it. So why not be a part of it? Right. So you graduated from USC Film School, so that's where you learned how to become a filmmaker. Where did you learn to become an activist? Well, you know, it's funny. I have so much respect for USC, but I would say I learned how to be a filmmaker by the sleepless nights of just filmmaking. Hmm. You know what I mean? And activism just came, like again, with a partner, uh, Jason Russell and Larry Poole. We say, hey, there's no one beating down our door like HBO, Showtime, a big studio would say, we'll distribute this film for you. And the film itself was cause-related with uh, Invisible Children, Child Soldiers. So we're like, that's fine. The message is so important that we're just going to put it out there. Mm-hmm. You know. So we went to colleges and high schools and started getting people involved. And that's what activism is. When you learn that it is a government-to-government thing, and that we can have a role, especially in this democracy, mm-hmm. of ending things, man, there's no, I mean, it's just a high. Mm. It is a high to experience because um, to, to know that you can have so much shape and impact over mm. the world, this generation can. I hear people will come to me, so they'll hear that we're raising money for Food for Africa, or they hear that we are you know, using our schools to show the invisible children and, and hosting the roadies who are out on the road, which yeah, who, whom I love. I love those people. They were just in the school a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and so they'll come to me. People come to me and say, oh, wait, I really want to, I want to go to Africa. I really want to go there and kind of help out the hungry. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, have you volunteered locally yet? Because <laughs> there's people right down the street in your own neighborhood. And I kind of feel like unless you're really willing to... Uh, sacrifice yourself and do whatever it takes on a local level. There is a myriad of things to get involved with Mm -hmm. in this world. And yeah, I mean, Boys and Girls Clubs from YMCA to DC Central Kitchen, like these feeding centers, it's important to be involved to give back locally. I think for me though, what happened, and maybe it's just my experience, the paradigm shift of saying, these uh, people who are so generous, who speak my language, who know about Nelly and Tupac and these kids, I mean, in Africa, because two-thirds of the media from America 
goes to Africa. That's what they get. So they know all of our pop stars. They know all of our superstars. And to see such extreme differences in their lifestyles compared to mine. And the, the big thing is the hopelessness. They don't have a chance to build themselves up because education is not there. Healthcare is not there. So to see that disparity really gave me kind of a new perspective of what I wanted to fight for in this global community. Oprah says, you know, the world is an interesting place. In America, she could go from, you know, kind of a impoverished girl and living in an impoverished family to the richest woman in the world because of America. Now, that is not true if she was born in another country, to right. be honest. So when I look at that, I'm like, ah, oh, that's... I want to fight for those people's freedoms as well. But yeah, volunteer hmm. anywhere. I mean, really, that's what we're all about. You know, and we help out all the time with other organizations. I don't know why I want to ask you this, mainly because I sometimes I feel like I'm this lone soldier preaching against these negative reality TV shows. And it's... There's do, so much reality. Do they offend you as much as they offend me? And to me, it's not so much... It's Yes, it's offensive, the things that are portrayed and, and the conversations that take place that basically are meaningless and petty and bitter and mean-spirited and gossipy and attackful. The thing that really hurts me is, okay, so where are the conversations that really matter? You know, so, okay, so you're getting together with your friends to talk about makeup and shoes and who you're dating and who's sleeping with who and blah, 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 blah. That's fine, but are you having meaningful conversations too? Are you having conversations that really matter, mm. that really go somewhere? Mm -hmm. Well, what I would say, honestly, turning that anger, because I've gotten mad, but then I, you know, I started turning that anger about what's on television or you know, just the pointlessness of it and saying, okay, the purpose of that television show is to entertain. Why can't I find a way, as an entertainer myself, for these causes, to make that relevant to a high school or college kid. Hmm. To say that's what I want more than I, I want to watch, you know, a Gus Girl or what. No, that's not a reality TV show, but like a Bachelor or something like this. Right. To say, like, I'm, I can't wait to go home and find out, you know, that, uh, care about this, this situation or something like this. So I put it back on myself because all these studio execs in television, they're after the bottom line. So how can I create a way in which it's watchable for the audience and entertaining? So we always try to put comedy in the films and stuff, and I hope that someday I'll have the opportunity to put great content out there that's entertaining and, and changes people's hearts and minds, because that, that's the best kind of stuff. Well, obviously you're, you're doing something that's working. Maybe you wouldn't naturally bring this up in a dialogue, but you've been on The Larry King Show and on Oprah. Yeah. Oprah was amazing. So, same with Larry King. He's, okay, well, tell great. us about your experience for Larry King, how that happened, and what were you doing? Well, if I can, talk even about the genesis of Larry King, uh, which was Oprah. We went around Oprah's building singing a song, 500 Strong, for two days straight. Trying to get in. Try, trying to just say, you've had us... Because I've been on Oprah twice, and the first time she put us on was on the night commuting phenomenon in northern Uganda. The second time we're like, we want to rescue the child soldiers and end this war. So we're like, we couldn't get a hold of our producers, so we just brought everybody to Chicago. This is whittled down from about 80,000 people, the 500 that left after a week sleeping in the rain, carrying signs and whatnot. She passed us, coming in, came outside. And this is how cool of a lady she is. She's just like, come on up, let's talk. And then she says, what do you want? And we're like, we just want a voice for this because you're one of the most powerful women in the world and you can really raise the profile on this. We're trying to get legislation passed. And she's like, sure, but I'll only give you a minute because I never do this. On air, we talked, Oprah and I, for eight minutes. And, oh. and that's how much she cared, you know? And it wasn't built into her program. But she drove so many people to our website that it just crashed, you know, and it consistently crashed. <laughs> it, it literally did? Oh, completely. I mean, it was like a little faucet and you just shove a fire hose through it. I mean, it's so much traffic. And I think that experience really said, I mean, that, that is an analogy for what we're able to do as this generation. We stood out front at the powers that be that are older than us and said, listen to this. They cared about it. When she was getting her makeup on, Oprah, she watched our movie. The rescue, because it was 30 minutes long. She watched it and she's like, for sure. And I think that's why she even engaged more, because she knew about it, and that's why film is so powerful. So then Larry King got a hold of the story, had us on. Well, Larry is just, I mean, he can 
he gets all the big interviews, obviously. I mean, he's been in business yeah. for so long. So He's interviewed the planet. Yeah. And, and so just an honor to be on the show. And I think, um, you know, that goes back to your question. How do we make these issues relevant? I think the first part is, okay, this is a remote war in northeastern Africa. How is it relevant for Larry King to put this on the air when you've got all this gossip out there that you could talk about or whatever? But it's this kind of leadership that, I mean, that's what really shows me is like Larry King took the initiative to have us on, even though it was a risk for his viewers. I mean, he's so prolific and well known that, you know, you just, he doesn't want to take those risks, but he did. He did on a few guys to come into the studio. And that is another sign of leadership. Hmm. You know, willing to take the risk with the power that you have Hmm. on potential that you see or what's right, Hmm. you know. So it was a great experience. I I actually had written down that I was going to ask you a question to give advice to somebody on on how to create a movement. I mean, people listening to this, they're passionate about something, Mm -hmm. hopefully. Mm -hmm. And they want to, you know create a movement, so to speak, whether that's their three circle of friends that are going to go do something or it's, you know, it's thousands and thousands of people. And maybe you kind of just answered to that. You have to make it relevant. Yeah. Movements happen out of necessity. Okay. So there's no reason to start a movement unless it's a fire in your belly that you can't stop thinking about, talking about and doing. So, you know, we never set out to say, we're going to create a movement. The movement happened out of people responding and, and raising up themselves. I mean, that's really what it is, is people, I would say a movement is people taking on the cause or the charge as personal as it could ever be to themselves, even if it doesn't affect them directly. So with the civil rights movement or the apartheid, you saw movements happen because it was affecting people directly. In this day and age, you know, there's a lot of issues that people are feeling the effect directly, even though they're not experiencing it. And that is a beautiful place that humanity has arrived at, that, that we're willing to stand up and speak out and step in the gap for our brothers and sisters that are hurting, even though it doesn't affect us directly. So so knowing that we were doing this interview today, I, I called uh, Emily, you know, who works with uh, I Am That Girl. Yeah. She loves you, by the way. I she, she's incredible. So here's what Emily said. Bobby is an unbelievable social entrepreneur, a filmmaker and activist who can create a movement unparalleled by anyone else out there. He is able to take something like a war in Uganda or malaria and make it relevant to people who are physically and mentally disconnected otherwise. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. A, that's a great explanation. Yeah. Emily's rad. And then, of course, she then she ask him this, ask him this, ask. So she sent me a whole bunch of. I told you I don't plan out my interviews, but apparently Emily does plan out our interviews. That's Emily Greener, by the way. Yeah, we love her. She's rad. So she kind of asked me, you know, studying filmmaking. When did you decide that you were going to use your talent for good? Yeah, well, you know, USC is known for doing the blockbuster, Hollywood type films, not for their documentarians necessarily. So uh, I don't think it was a decision that I made consciously. I think when that paradigm shift happened for me in Uganda, seeing the injustice, knowing that we have a platform through media that could be very powerful, it was like, is there anything else I'd rather do? Hmm. No, there isn't. I mean, if you have a certain talent out there, then you really should ask yourself what you want to use it for. And when I thought, you know, I could make a feature-length film, write a script that's just entertaining people, or maybe I could try to make a film relevant for a generation to cause them to move outside of themselves and have an experience that they've never experienced before. I was like, no-brainer. I want to fight for something. And I think that's true for for a lot of people. Do you ever see yourself doing both? Doing the blockbuster because just for entertainment purposes only and to make a ton of money? You know, I don't know. Now that I'm kind of locked into this a livelihood, I would like I would like bigger budgets to do like a, a narrative doc mix, maybe. But uh, yeah, I'll probably do a, a narrative film. But the thing is, I don't know how it's gonna fulfill me as much as this does. Cause right. I, I, I'm I'm pretty. It's it's a lot of work, but it's it's really fulfilling. So, you know, just making a popcorn movie 
a popcorn movie. Okay. It is is an experience, but I don't know if I'm uh, if I'm there. I asked uh, Peter Vidmar, you know, what was who's Olympic gold medalist, you know, who basically you have to give up yeah. high school, dating, prom, you give up all of that, the high school experience, the college experience, to be able to pursue becoming a gold medalist. And I asked him what was the sacrifice. He said there was no sacrifice. I was doing what I loved. Right. I chose this. Yeah. The sacrifice is when you're. You know, giving up what you love to do something else. He's like, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. Is that kind of how you feel? Yeah. You know, so pe the, the grass for me, I guess the grass is always going to be greener. You're mm -hmm. always like, oh man, I wish I could be this filmmaker, you know, uh, work with George Clooney or whatever. But then I think, because I've had friends that have stepped out, like um, Jason Russell took some time and made another movie with a friend that was, was a dance movie. And we talked on the phone all the time during that period and he's like, I just really... Uh, miss, you know, the late nights and working for a cause that um, that I believe in and that I'm impacting. You know, that's another thing. It's like, if you feel like you're making a difference, I think that's something that can really sustain someone hmm. for a long time. Of course. You know? Do, do you ever get overwhelmed or discouraged in this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with anything you do and then you just kind of... How do you deal with that? How do you get over that? I just complain. <laughs> I just complain a lot. I thought he was going to have something like, I meditate, I, uh, I complain. Oh, that's funny. I bitch and moan. Mostly to, <laughs> mostly to Aaron about, no. Yeah, I mean, there's venting that happens. I, it's just, you know, a lot of talking through it. But uh, no, and there's, there's prayer and whatnot. But uh, I think at the end of the day, you just kind of... Like, this is what it is, and so it's man up. I lived for two weeks last month with not a single dime to my name. So, I mean, I was really borrowing money, like, and that's when it gets really hard, but then you have the story to tell afterwards. Well, we made it through it, you know? And the, the movie's done, and the movement's happening, so, you know, you can sit back on that reality and say, well, I did sacrifice for the cause. But, yeah, no, I just complain. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Emily also told me to ask you about the truth about following your passion. Do you know what she means by that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Steinbeck, John Steinbeck, uh, wrote a book called East of Eden. It's my favorite book, and there's a character named Tom, and his dad's named Samuel in the book. And Samuel is talking about his son, and he says, I am worried about Tom because he has the potential for greatness and huge potential leadership and kind of shaping the world. And then he was having the conversation, he said, why are you worried about your son like that? Isn't that great? And he's like, I would almost rather my, my son be mediocre because of the sacrifice and the loneliness that mm. comes with kind of being a leader. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a great amount of sacrifice that comes in whenever you step into something like this. Mm. But the glory of making that choice, you know, like bees will make honey. That's what they do. Cows will eat grass, but human beings can make a choice of what they want to do. And there's a glory in choosing something that's sacrificial, pushing into it through the end when you think you have no more and coming out on the other side and saying, you know, I failed many times along the way, but those were just the battles and we won the war. Hmm. You know, and that's the way to think about life. You will fail. I mean, I've failed so many times in my life, it's not even funny, but it's a matter of picking yourself back up and saying, I'm gonna still continue to fight the good fight. I think that is a, a powerful message to let people know that it is kind of lonely sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you know, people think, wow, if I rise to the top and, and I'm this fabulous person who, who gives back and my heart is in the right place, then I'm gonna be surrounded by and supported by more and more people and, and sometimes it's, it's the opposite of that yeah you know I, we, we call it visionaries and we, we divide people into visionary fence sitters or resistors mm. you know and, and and i always tell people we would love to assume that most people are visionaries truth of the matter is it's that's not the truth it's not the truth yeah, yeah and being a visionary uh, not only is it lonely sometimes it also means that you're the target mm -hmm. if, if our standards weren't high well, then nobody's going to call us on anything. The minute that we say, this is who we are, this is what we stand for, this is what we strive what for, do, yeah. now you're a target. Oh, completely, completely. I, I think, especially if you're dreaming for the impossible, mm -hmm. you're going to have a lot of resistance. You're going to have people saying, 
that is, even inside your own organization. Right. You know, which, I mean, I can't tell you how many arguments I got with in the, with the founders of Invisible Children going back and forth of what we should do, pushing against each other. But at the end of the day, it makes it better. Mm. And I think what, what's interesting, when you talk about pop culture, I really do believe that they need, in a way, to be told what's good and what's bad. You know, blue collar comedy tour or whatever. People watch that maybe just because it's on and it's kind of the lowest common denominator, right? But if you're able to put something in front of people that actually challenges them, I do think that they respond. So going back to your television question, I think we can move culture in that direction and they just need to be told that this is good for them and this is entertaining and let's go down this path. And so that's a lot of what we do is just to try to like really sit back and say, what do you want your life to look like? What does this generation want to look like? And then start building the pieces towards it. So let's move in this direction of, of what you're now focusing on. So tell me about the relationship that you have now with the UN. Yeah. So what, do you have a title? Do you have a position? Do you have a... I, you know, really, it's just kind of one of those things Which, that, congratulations. Did you ever... UN Foundation? Doesn't, doesn't that blow you away? That oh, the UN came after you? It was an honor. Jeez. It's, it's been an honor to work with them, especially on a, a project like this. Elizabeth Gore, who's the executive producer of this film that I just did, I don't have a title at the UN. I just am the filmmaker behind this and, and also try oh, that's to all? Okay. spread the, the movement out. But um, Elizabeth Gore said to me, you know, the UN obviously, you know, has a tradition about itself. But she, like any great leader, took a risk on doing a film on malaria that was 60 minutes long that's kind of for the millennial generation. It's fun, it's got music in it, you know, that kind of thing. Unlike anything they've ever done. So yeah, my huge respect to like Nothing But Nets, UN Foundation, especially Elizabeth Gore for taking the risk. And I think the dividends of just awareness are gonna pay out tenfold hmm. on what they put into, you know, because it's really, if people knew, if people see the story, I do think that they respond. And we've seen it time and time again with Invisible Children, we're seeing it at these screenings. And we just had a screening last night that 150 people were, were at. How did they find out about it? Facebook, YouTube, we have no marketing plan. I mean, as far as billboards are concerned, or we're just starting, we're like three weeks old. But people want to see it, they care about these issues, and they come out, and they know they can make a difference. So what's your hope for this film? Obviously, you're going to do a lot of couch surfing for how long to, to get this. Do you have a, a tour set up already, or do yeah. you know what the schedule is? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to be... You in... do? Because I asked you two weeks ago, and you didn't know. And then all of a sudden, I get a, an email. Hey, when? It's tomorrow night. I'm like, gee, thanks for the notice. <laughs> <laughs> it is building the plane as it flies completely. Okay. With no money, so you're grabbing spare parts of the plane, and it's flying in the air, and you're outside of it trying to hammer or something. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> we okay. we are we are building our website. I mean, literally, we're in we're in the foundation of this movement. But what's coming up, and what what's exciting is that information can move very fast in this age. Mm -hmm. So April 24th, we're having a huge event in six cities that I'm planning. You know, and then also the UAM or United Against Malaria, UN Foundation are, are going to be planning other events, one campaign to try to get the legislation that we need to end malaria deaths by 2015. And so that happens April 24th, six cities, but I think it's going to be a lot more than that. So really what I'm doing now is just targeting those cities. So, so what's happening in April is just a... It's... What we're doing is sleeping outside so that others can sleep in and under a net. You know, that's what it really comes down to. So what we're going to do is we're asking people to, to sign up for this event. We want to get them a kind of a net scarf, kind of, you know, something that they can wear symbolizing what we're trying to deliver to Africa. And then, you know, the night will be planned out, musicians, whatnot. But the whole idea is just public space, making ourselves known, getting the news out, local news, and uh, letting more people know about it. What are the cities? The cities are Los Angeles, New York, DC, Seattle, Nashville, and Philadelphia. Okay, and you're, how many people, people are, you, are you hoping? Well, since the movement's so new, we're gonna try to just disseminate it as much as possible. I really wanna try to see if we can get 2,000 people out so that the news- In really each of those cities. In each of those cities. And I think we can do it. And the reason why I think we can do it is because 
the college networks are great. And, and right. once kids find it, they are your ambassador. Of so, course. So, you know, we're getting kind of a late start. But again, I think if this was 2003 or four, it would be impossible to do it. Now, in 2010, there's just a great opportunity through the, all the social networking that we have just to spread an idea. I have 8,000 Facebook friends, so let's... <laughs> yeah, we'll message them. Get out. I have only 3,000. Wow, you just freaking... So this Master CD is going to be coming out in April of 2010, and obviously people are going to listen to this after the fact, but just tell us exactly what's happening in April the, the 24th. The 24th, we're... What are you calling it exactly? The Sleep Out. The Sleep Out. To End Malaria. Got it. Which is really true. I mean, we can do it. Um, so we really want to get some people out there. April 24th, go to uh, nothingbutnets. Nothingbutnets.net. Dot net. Backslash sleep out or just nothing but nets.net and you'll find it sign up and you'll get all the information there But if you want to see the movie what I like to do is just you know Send people the movie because it is about advocacy. So if you're interested, please go to when the night comes Dot com. When the night comes dot com. Yeah, and email us which is and all you'll, the information you'll, will be there Can you you click and see the movie online or you or you mail out a DVD? We'll probably mail it out yeah. Right, and so you're asking people, maybe they host their own little yeah. gatherings and bring people together and yeah, stuff. Yeah, make it a little event. Obviously, there's a call to action. Is the call to action that you want people to send money or just be aware? I mean, tell us what you want. Well, there's three points, right? Okay. There's an advocacy point, which okay. we're, our first event is April 24th. Okay. And then there's the ability to uh, actually just send a net. Send a net, save a life. What, what does a net cost? A net... So it's a, so tell people it's it's a net that hangs over their beds. Yeah, yeah. So people sleep in it. I lived in South America, so we slept under nets. It wasn't to prevent malaria, but it was to get the bugs, to stop the bugs, to stop the bugs. So these so. these nets are actually treated with pesticides. So, but they're not oh, harmful wow. for humans. But if a mosquito lands on it, then it dies. Oh wow! So it's a great. It's the most cost-effective weapon we have. And what does a net cost? A net costs about five bucks, but then the implementation of that net. Cost another five dollars because. What do you mean the implementation? Well, to, to send it out and to get it set. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, what's important is that you're not just shipping a bunch of nets to Africa, but that actually the communities, the rural communities, know the purpose of these nets. What to do with them? And how important they can be. We've seen deaths from malaria be cut in half in countries throughout Africa because they've seen the right implementation of the nets. So just as important as the nets are, the education behind the nets, the advocacy awareness about it in Africa, just as we do in America, is just as important. So Elizabeth Gore, does she have a number of nets in mind of how many she wants to send over there? I mean, it's so it's basically it's $10 for every net that gets sent over. I mean, do you have a figure in mind? Oh, man. You know, there is a great need for nets. Nothing but nets has been around for just over three years. So they're doing their part, but there's a lot of other organizations doing their part, and the UN is really helping to implement the nets on the ground. So we do need a lot of nets, and uh, that's the best way for individuals to get involved, is sending a net, $10. So people go online to... Oh yeah, they can donate right there. And they donate $10 or whatever right there. Yeah, and then there's also... Tell us the website again where they somebody can donate. Nothingbutnets.net. Got it. And then for the film, and you know, what I like doing too is proceeds from all of our merchandise on whenthenightcomes.com mm -hmm. goes to a net, you know? Right. So what's nice about being like a social entrepreneur is that you build in philanthropy into your business model. And I, I think you guys do this too, but you know, if you sell a t-shirt, you know that you're wearing a t-shirt that actually provided a net for someone. Right. And that feels awesome. I mean, we, putting a cause behind your, your products is, is great and being able to make a difference with a purchase right. is awesome. Right. So I, well, I just think that's the only way, it's not just a nice way, to me it's the only way to do business. If you're in business for profit, you're taking something that from that community and to not give anything back just does not make sense to me. So if you're doing 10 things in the course of a day, nine of them might be related to you putting money in your own pocket. The 10th thing every day better be something that's making a difference for somebody else. And, and for a lot of businesses, it's like, well, they attend a black tie fundraising cocktail party during the holiday season and that's their 
they bought the We Are The World CD and that's all they ever did. Meaning it has to be part of business. And I, I just, as much as we can send that message out to people in control of businesses where you can use your platform, you can use your influence Whatever that looks like. You don't have to wait to be Oprah Winfrey to have that kind of influence to then want to do something good with it. Yeah. If, if you have three customers, then you have influence. Mm -hmm. If you have one employee, you have influence. And you can use that starting today. Use your platform to whatever the cause is, whether it's one that you are passionate about or, or something else. But it's just good business. It's, it's good business. It's the right thing to do. How many more ways can we put it? I think you're exactly right when you say it's good business. And I think there's a lot of fear involved sometimes with businesses saying, well, I have to make sure that we are profitable in this for our shareholders. But at the end of the day, if you're able to create what uh, you know Kevin Roberts, CEO of Saatchi & Saatchi calls a love mark, where the brand is not just a brand to someone. Apple computers to a lot of people and their products are a love mark because people are like, I am obsessed with watching Steve Jobs introduce the new thing. Right. Or I love my Apple so much, it's part of like almost my, it's my childhood. Or well, Harley Davidson. Exactly. People tattoo their logo to their body. Right. Why is that? Because it's promoting an idea right. of a uh, lifestyle a or lifestyle. whatever. Yeah. And I think more and more you're going to see uh, corporations attach themselves to causes that are really. In inspiring because that helps bring their brand into that love mark category. So uh, now, what did you you called it a brand love mark? Well, that's not my term. Kevin Roberts, CEO, right. yeah, Sachin Sashi created it, and he has a book called Love Marks. And I just think it's so it's something that you do inherently in your business. You know, you you create a space for people. You have like uh, you know, I talked about the wardrobe in the Paul Mitchell schools, which is awesome. But you're also giving back, so that Paul Mitchell brand, the schools become something so much more than just a salon. Meaning it's I may never get my hair cut there, I may never buy a bottle of that shampoo, but I'm still in love with that brand because of the other stuff that they do, because they make a difference, because they But what I'm saying is people will buy your products, and they will because they love it, you know? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they do it? If they had to make a choice in a store, they're gonna go with you even if it's a little more expensive because they know mm -hmm. you, they feel like they know mm -hmm. you, and they're part of the community. You know, and this might be valuable information for people listening to this. You know, I don't really advocate, I mean, it can be this way, but I don't really advocate that people give up revenue. You know, so I'm not saying do a cut-a-thon on a Saturday and you give all the money. You can do that, and a lot of people do do that. You don't always have to do that. What I like to promote is that you have influence, and so... The money that we raise, like we'll raise over a million dollars this year, and none of it is giving up our own revenue. It's we're utilizing the people who are already customers and already employees and already comfortable in working with us, and they're giving additional money for car washes or bake sales or you know fashion shows or whatever, up and above what they're already giving to us for services and products. So. And, and the only way that you're able to do that is because you have built in that loyalty to your brand already that people are willing to come out to these events. Mm. And you incentivize people, right? You have a competition to but raise yeah. money. And, and it's fun. And, and, and it's, it's so uh, fun. And people are really fighting and doing crazy creative stuff. And that's where... The thing um, I loved about your really film, good. and I hope you understand where I'm coming from, you made malaria almost seem sexy. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like the cause of, of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was you did such a great job with it. Thanks. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of making it relevant. And, and why mm -hmm. shouldn't... Yeah, when you say sexy, I get what you mean. But why shouldn't it be something that we're talking about and saying, wow. You know, um, David Lane, who's this, the CEO of One Campaign, talked about the accident of geography within the film. You know, the malaria film. And I think whenever you're tackling a subject matter, it goes beyond just the disease. We're talking about the global system here and, and really paradigm shifting ideas. Like what if you were born in the slums of Nairobi, David says in the film. And I think it's so true. When do we think about that? I mean, we, we are a very absorbed, sometimes like a fish in water, not knowing that there's a, a sky above us. There's a whole other world there. Mm -hmm. So I love making material that allows people to really think. Mm. And there's a quote at the end of the film that says, plant trees in whose shade you do not expect to sit. 
And I think that can extend not only to, to charity and philanthropy, but building into people, your staff, saying like, I'm not going to build into this relationship just because I'm going to benefit from it, but because like there's a, a challenge, there's a desire there to see that person succeed. And the people that you save literally save, you're probably never going to meet them. They're never oh, going to, yeah. they're never going to come and thank you. They're never, you know. But it's not, it's not really about that, yeah. Yeah, you know? Yeah. So. Do you have a final message for our listeners? And I could give you a whole bunch of topics, but I'll let you choose your own. I mean, I would love that the um, final message to the millennium generation, which mm-hmm. is your peers on, you know, empowering them, uh, a message to, you know, the, the leaders, the parents, uh, the people who, you know, control or manage or, or lead that generation. Yeah. I think every, we talked about millennials a lot, but you know, a lot of the stereotypes for millennial generations and the progressives of the other generations transcend stereotypes and the fact that I think if you're a leader, if you're a CEO of any kind, like you said, you have to be a visionary pushing the envelope. And what does that mean? I do believe it means betraying the culture. So looking at the moral foibles of a generation or like where the gaps are and then stepping into it. I mean, we do it all the time with products, you know, or new gadgets or there was no YouTube, you create it or Twitter, you know. So, but it's also stepping in the gaps of the injustices going on. So that's the gap you're talking about. That, I mean, I think, I think that's important. I think that's a big way in which you can inspire your employees no matter what business you're in. Because there is a lot of things that are just moral blind spots that we don't see. I mean, civil rights movement, it was crazy. There was such a division in humanity in the United States with blacks and whites and, you know, the racism. And even though that's still going on today, we've come a long way. And we couldn't imagine living in a world like that. But so many people did. So there was this blind spot of humanity. Now, we're going to look back in 25 years and say, I can't believe a child was dying every 30 seconds. And we could have done something. So these are these moral blindsets that we kind of just accept. But if you're able to expose that to people and you actually challenge them to say you can make a difference, that's a beautiful thing. And that can really change the course of history. Hmm. So, but thank you for having me on. You're incredible. I really appreciate it. it <laughs> well, was, it's been an honor. Good luck to you. And, uh, wow. Whatever small, small part that this... Uh, interview will play in helping you get the word out i feel so honored to be able to play that that part for you today yeah and i I mean seriously i'm such a big fan Mm. of your organization what you guys do which i didn't even know Mm. how much you gave back so that's pretty phenomenal thanks bobby yeah thanks bobby